food, baby. We in here, yeah, we in here. Y'all better get comfortable with saying black. We in here, yeah, we in here. Black versus the Board of Education. That's why we are indeed a whole mood. That's it. See, and Tevin didn't even give me a chance to cue him today. <laughs> well, welcome to another Monday right here on Black versus the Board of Education. My name is Miss Laureen, and I am, of course, your host with the most. Um, but listen, we got a lot to talk about. You feeling some type of way. Yeah. Um, and because you're feeling some type of way, I'm going to let you start by introducing yourself. And then we can get to the rest of the cast and our special guests. So go ahead and take it away, sir. Uh, hello, my name is Jalen. I am from the California area, uh, particularly Sacramento. And uh, Sacramento, no beam was lit on Sunday, and we are kind of sad about it. Um, <laughs> it was a good year. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, sadly, we have somebody who's going to who's going to rub it in. So if you're from Sacramento, knock it off, knock it off. Don't, don't put up a disclaimer. You got to take this. Hold on. You got to take this. Come on, Adrian. Say, Hey, hello, Adrian from California area. Also from Sacramento, but you know, I'm a Lakers fan. So we winning. Hey, here we go. Here we go. Tevin had to give you extra air horns because he too is a Laker fan. Uh, (laughs) Go ahead and pull up Anaya and Jada. Class of 2023, represent. Uh, You can go first, go ahead. Okay. Hey, everyone. Um, My name is Anaya, and I'm currently a senior, not for long, but. Hey, guys. My name is Jada. I am a homeschool senior, but actually, not really, because yesterday was my last day of school. So So you're a college freshman. Y'all are cutting up already. And you know what? Today is May 1st, which is Decision Day. And ladies, you are going to be telling us where you're going to college. All right. So we will get to you momentarily. Um, Go ahead and pull up Melissa, please. Hey, Melissa. Hi, everyone. My name is Melissa. I am in the SoCal area and I am a junior. Tevin just wanted to give an honorable mention because he wasn't at your event and we were, but go ahead. All right. Yeah. Where's Sam? Cause Sam has, I see him. <laughs> He's been shaking the whole time. Uh, Pull Sam up. Come on, Sam. It's a good day right now. <laughs> Yesterday, Sam dropped 50 on them boys. 50 on them. <laughs> <laughs> I got accepted into the National Junior Honor Society. I'm up right now. All Come on. Oh, okay. <laughs> But can but can you introduce yourself, love? Hello, my name is Samuel. Um, <laughs> I'm in sixth grade. Uh, yeah, I'm good at school. Okay. Let's go! Okay. Come on, good at school. Listen, <laughs> Sam, <laughs> you ta- you started off really hype, and then when you started talking about yourself, you you kind of deflated. So I'm gonna need you to keep that energy up. Um, but we have a special guest in the building with us today. Mr. Chet P. Hewitt of the Sierra <laughs> Health Foundation. Um, will you please introduce yourself? I know I just said your name, but can you just can you just introduce yourself to the to the folks watching and in 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 the place? Go ahead and introduce yes. yourself. Chet Hewitt, uh, president of Sierra Health Foundation and the center at Sierra Health, so both organizations. And 
We're headquartered here in California, in Sacramento, but work across the, the entire state of California. That is dope. That is dope. So we're going to get into a discussion. Uh, but before we do that, we got to just do a couple of recaps. And I know Sam just went ahead of the, the mark. I was going to give him some time, but he didn't already took it. Um, Melissa had a show on uh, Saturday. Saturday. Yep. Saturday. And we flew down just to get, catch a glimpse of this black excellence at work. And when I tell you she did not disappoint, OMG. Uh, Melissa, talk to us about it. How did it feel? What What were you thinking? I mean, come on. That was probably the most nerve wracking thing I have ever done. And I love getting up and doing poetry, but I'm used to doing a three minute poem and I had a 15 minute set. Uh, that It was a lot, but I am so proud of myself because I worked so hard to be able to get there. Um, there's not a lot of teenage poets that are able to be able to get on stages surrounded by adults so i am i'm really proud of myself for being able to get there i got up there i did my first poem and then my mouth went completely dry i thought i was gonna pass out i was like oh my god everybody can tell that i like don't know what i'm supposed to say and then i picked and then i picked it back up and i figured out what i was gonna say and i drank a whole bottle of water as soon as i sat down so (laughs) i'm really proud of myself i think i did pretty good now now they refer to her as a poet prodigy mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. i don't know if that is the best way to describe you because what i saw was pure professionalism i don't know what you're talking about about being nervous <laughs> that came across and y'all were sitting there too what what did you think of I, her? I, if you wouldn't have told me it was 15 minutes i wouldn't have thought it was 15 minutes <laughs> <laughs> i thought it was, was that including the video that's what was like <laughs> no that wasn't including the video i was a little fast um because we had it we could just do whatever we wanted within that 15 minutes well there was 15 minutes carved out for each person wow yeah. well i mean it flew by you like and it means it takes a lot for me to stay engaged and i stayed engaged the whole time and you was doing you know the domers was the domers was there the domers was there, the domers was there. yeah it was my first ever poetry slam going to one so as I was watching, every time I thought she was going to go in like to a speech or something about herself, and then she would start to rhyme, I'm like, oh, she's still doing a poem. Yeah. <laughs> you couldn't tell, huh? No. I couldn't tell either. I was like, oh, oh, oh. oh. girl, I thought you was. Were you going in and out, or? Yeah, I was going in and out. Yeah, that was one of the tips that um, the producer gave me. He was like, try to keep them on their toes and don't let them know when you're going into the poem. Don't introduce the poem. Just flow in and out and I was like okay I had never done that before so I was really excited to try something different so I'm glad I'm glad y'all caught that no that was hard I was like okay ad-libs ad-libs <laughs> <laughs> Jada what did you think I mean Jada stayed with the camera on you the whole time I was so proud of her like I know I'm not her mom but I felt like a proud parent. I don't know why I was just so happy to just see if, like I couldn't tell you were nervous like to me you just seem to be in your natural element and mm. it looked so amazing. You did so amazing. You made me emotional when you cried at that video. I was like, oh, oh my God. I did not know they were going to do all that. So they had us send like 10 photos beforehand, like a couple of weeks ago. I didn't know they were doing all that. And so that's what made me really nervous. Cause I was like, oh, I got this. I've been practicing for like a month. And then the video came up and I was like, dang, they really want me to get up here and talk after I was over here sobbing. Okay, so, Mama was proud too. You see her in the comments. Hey, 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 Mama. 
Um, and it was so dope. It was just good to see you in your element. And for those who are probably listening for the first time or whatever, we met this young lady virtually in 2020 because of the pandemic. And we've stayed connected since then. And um, it's just been a treat. So kudos to you. Thank you guys for coming. But we're going to make a hard transition because I don't like leaving our guests waiting. So I apologize for that. Okay. But, that, but we got to give flowers where flowers are due, sir. I, I totally agree. <laughs> I'm feeling like I missed something. I <laughs> Wait, I got I got a couple video clips that we can share. Yeah. Um, So we'll we'll be sure to uh, make those available to you. Um, But we want to talk about you because yeah. you've been. How long have you been at Sierra Health Foundation? It's been 16 years. 16 years. Mm-hmm. And I want to say this is the first time we've ever met and I'm upset about that to be perfectly honest with you, because, you know, I, I normally gravitate to where the money's at and um, I didn't know you were the money person. Um, I didn't know that you held that position because a lot of times when we're talking about philanthrop- philanthrop- what philanthropy, philanthropy mm-hmm. and we're talking about people who can actually change the trajectory in communities, um, a lot of them don't look like you. Most of them don't look like me. Okay. More than well, I was, a I was lot trying to be polite. Just, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm just trying to be, I'm just being brutally honest. No, I understand. You know, most of them uh, are not you know, black folks. Uh-huh. Uh, not afraid to say the word. Okay. Uh, most of them aren't people of color. And that's, you know, nationally how philanthropy you know, looks. So then explain to me or tell me, how did you get into philanthropy or this type of work? Like, tell me, how, how, how did you get started? You know, there's no direct pathway into philanthropy. Like you like going to school to be a dentist or right. a doctor. You don't go to school to be a, a philanthropist. There's usually two ways you do it. Either you have a whole lot of money yourself and you want to give it away and you call yourself mm-hmm. a philanthropist, or you know, you have some level of achievement in your professional life where philanthropy, the kind of sector, mm-hmm. uh, calls you into it. And so which I, one are you? <laughs> uh, you know, I'm one of the folks who's called okay. into the sector, right. uh, probably if unique in any way. I've been in and out of it three times. I've been in and out of public service. So I've actually flowed into philanthropy and then back out to public service and then back in and so forth mm-hmm. uh, and tried to always have a level of achievement in my professional life so that when philanthropy was looking for somebody around, you know, leadership position that I would be, you know, someone they would consider. Wow. And so... What kind of trajectory is that? So did you go, what What did you major in in school and how did you find yourself kind of in this, in the position to be selected to then lead this effort uh, around philanthropy? Yeah, you know, I'm trained as a lawyer and a, a, a criminal defense attorney was what okay. I was supposed to be. But, you know, I found that to be lacking. It wasn't where my passion was. And so, you know, we're talking earlier about poetry and know, passion and, you know, you got to find your passion in life because you will do best professionally what you care about most. Mm. Uh, and I've been really fortunate and blessed to, to have opportunities to pursue my passion. So after you know, law school, my first project was really a, a, a program at the Center of Juvenile Criminal Justice in San Francisco, where I worked with kids who were being held in juvenile halls and taking them back before judges to get them back in their community. And we called it alternative sentencing, Mm. uh, alternative dispositions. Uh, And so, of course, most of the kids were black. (laughs) They came from either the Fillmore or Bayview Hunters Point or, you know, communities, known black communities. 
uh, in San Francisco, and it was very successful. He just kind of, you know, if they were held in detention and judge refused to release them, we would build a, a reentry to community plan, mm -hmm. bring them back before the judge, and tell the judge that we would help them implement those plans. We take responsibility along with their families for making sure they were going to be safe in those communities and they were less likely to get back into trouble. That was really, really successful. That got me into the, uh, you know, uh, notice of philanthropy. Mm -hmm. And from that particular process, I was awarded a fellowship at the Annie Casey Foundation, okay. which is the nation's largest children and family focused foundation and spent a year in Baltimore and traveling around the country as part of my fellowship. So that was kind of like my, my first entry uh, into philanthropy. Jalen. So my question for you is, what is your moment that everything clicked for you in this space? In the space of philanthropy? Yes. Because, you know, there, there are many moments, you know, across the life I've been around a long time where, where, where you know, people have poured into me in ways that have transformed my life. Mm -hmm. uh, and part of that passion is for me to offer that back. Um, uh, around my professional life, it probably was when I decided I wasn't going to really pursue uh, you know, criminal defense as my my kind of main focus area of work. And you know, that was because, you know, when I was in law school, I was a certified law student, which means I was able to do misdemeanor cases under the supervision of a licensed attorney even before I had graduated. And, you know, one of the most kind of challenging parts of that experience was walking into 850 Bryan Street, which is a hall of justice in San Francisco, and seeing people who always looked like me waiting to have their pretrial hearings. Mm. And I would have conversations with, often with a lot of young people of color, often male, most of the time black. And, you know, I realized that my ability to suppress evidence or do uh, what lawyers do, what they use their technical knowledge to do, was not really addressing their problems. Mm. Most of the young men there would talk to me about, like, you know, I'm out in the street, I'm selling this or I'm doing this because I'm paying the rent. Yeah, uh, I'm feeding my brothers and sisters. I'm trying to buy clothes. And so suppressing evidence or some other technical device that might have put them back on the street had little to no impact yeah. on the things that got them there in the first place. And so for me, it was about moving upstream, as we say in the business and trying to figure out, you know, how could you help people not get out of you know jail, but not go to jail? You know, yeah. and that was for me, kind of a redirecting moment. After spending three years in law school, I decided, like, hey, maybe there's another way to think about uh, doing the work that I was committed to doing. Mm, Melissa. So I'm hearing the word philanthropist. What does that mean? What exactly is a philanthropist? Well, philanthropist is someone who works in philanthropy, but the world of philanthropy are folks who give away resources, usually money, um, uh, to nonprofits uh, to do good work in their communities. And, you know, philanthropy is not charity. People think, like, you know, it's the same thing. You know, charity is like when you see somebody on the corner who needs a little bit of help and you, you know, go in your pocket and you help them. You know, you have little to no expectation from that financial gift. You hope they do it, use it well. Yeah. They're hungry, whatever. But you have no control of that. Your heart moves you. You feel connected. You do something good for somebody. Love it. It's really important. It could be described as kind of a personal philanthropy. But in the world of philanthropy as a sector, um, it's about strategy. It's about advocacy. It's about really thinking about what your 
supporting with your financial resources, and having real expectations for something to change. I mean, holding the person who receives those resources accountable right. for doing something. It's not what we do when we give a buck on the corner to somebody. Like I say, we hope they do something good, but you know, that's our heart speaking. In philanthropy, it's your heart, but you gotta have some head, some strategy, some thinking, and that expectation as well. Mm. Sam. So um, I saw on your LinkedIn page that uh, uh, after the Rockefeller Foundation, you kind of got in back. You kind of got into childcare services, uh, social services, things of that nature for I think what six years, seven years. Mm -hmm. um, so what kind of caused that transition, <laughs> and what in that process led you back into philanthropy? What you do? That's a good question. That's a great question. Yeah, you know, I was at Rockefeller for uh, a little over six years, close to six years. Uh, that was after my Casey Fellowship. Did some wonderful work. Got to work with some extraordinary uh, people um, uh, and ran their West Coast operation out of San Francisco uh, during that, that time. Uh, during my fellowship year, I had met a number of people too because I traveled the country and my fellowship was about leadership and met folks like Otis Johnson in Savannah, Georgia, who created a unique youth uh, development organization who went on to become first black mayor of Savannah, two-time mayor. Phenomenal, phenomenal people. Angela Blackwell, who was at Rockefeller and formed Policy Link. People who really poured into me. Uh, one, of, one of my stops during the fellowship was uh, to work uh, in social services in Alameda County. Mm. Um, and I spent uh, almost two and a half months there. I got to know some folks. Um, and while I was at Rockefeller, uh, they approached me about coming back into public service, which I had left before my kind of two tours in, in philanthropy. And it was, of course, their child welfare system uh, was having some challenges and looking for a new leader. And I decided I it was time for me to go and do something you know, else, mm -hmm. uh, to be a little bit closer to the work, uh, to be service to my community, because I knew the overwhelming the kids uh, who were in uh, child welfare were likely to be of color and likely to be black. And I felt like I had had some experience that I could offer uh, to help improve you know, that system. And, and I would say my time there, six years, did a lot of great work. It's probably, if you look from here online, that I'm probably most known for. Uh, it was some challenging times. I'll tell you that. I bear some of the scars proudly. He'll bear some of the scars because we fought for children, we fought for black children, we fought mm -hmm. for black children and families to be at home and to be safe and to invest the resources that we have been paying for out of home placement to actually strengthen families and young people who are transitioning out of foster care uh, as well. So, was that met with what type of resistance did you feel like and in that time? Because you said it was hard work, you yeah. know, what type of resistance were you encountering? when you were trying to specifically help black kids? You know, this, I, I think the, the, the deepest part of it was in some ways, you know, psychological, mm. you know, people mistook poverty for neglect. Mm. You know, wow. many of my social workers uh, were not people of color. Mm -hmm. uh, they were not from communities like East and, Old, and West Oakland, where most of our kids know, came from and Fruit Ridge and Fruitvale, and they would go into some of these communities and they would see conditions that should be concerning to people. Right. right. But it doesn't mean that if you're not wealthy, that you don't love your kids, you aren't willing to 
prepared to fight for your kids and you're not going to keep them safe. Right. And one of the things we really struggled with was kind of changing that narrative, you know, and to make people aware of the fact that child welfare is, is as part mm -hmm. of a broader, you know, um, profession of social work, mm -hmm. that the goal ultimately was to keep families together, not to remove kids and to invest in the families, they, the things that they needed so that kids could be uh, safe and well and thriving, ultimately. Um, that was really, really hard. Because for folks who don't understand what poverty looks like, mm -hmm. you know, if you came from a wealthy neighborhood, there's some places you go don't look like you grew up. And you could begin to believe that simply the aesthetic, the visual, what you see was a representation of a lack of caring when in reality, it's what poverty looks like in communities that have been underinvested in yeah. and disinvested in, which is part of our social structure. It doesn't mean people aren't working hard or trying hard or anything else, but that doesn't mean that folks are safe. Now, I'm a kid from Brooklyn. I used to tell my social workers uh, who didn't really like this that uh, when I grew up, you know, CPS was like a threat. Yeah, People would tell you, like, who called CPS on you? That was like a threat. And that we didn't see you know, child welfare as a family supporting entity. Never. <laughs> you know, I was told as a young kid when they showed up and you knew who they were, because they were usually white, female, and with a police escort. Yep. That my response to that was to go home, lock the door. If they knocked, don't answer. Right. And whenever a helping system is described in that way, then you know their ability to be helpful to people is extraordinarily limited if it exists at all. So we had we to fight that that narrative, mm -hmm. that expectation, and show folks that, you know, we were there to do something very, very different. Jada and Anaya, since y'all both sitting next to each other looking like Bopsy twins, what's up? Um, a question of mine was, so I don't know if you really went into depth with it, but since we're speaking on you being a philanth philanthropist, if mm -hmm. I said the word right? Um, and you said, uh, we don't see a lot of people like you. We don't see a lot of black men in these or black people in general in these positions. How was it? How was adjusting into this role and doing what you do? Did you ever face any conflict? Did it ever discourage you to a point where you wanted to give up? You know, yes, I faced conflict. Uh, you know, I've gone to conferences around philanthropy, particularly when I got started where, you know, People would get up from tables and see who they're going to lunch with, and you'd be sitting there by yourself. You know, people wouldn't oh. extend the kind of, you know, grace and inclusion that, you know, other folks who might have been new to the field, you know, would, would have. But I, I don't know that I ever felt like I didn't belong. I, I, I didn't feel like I didn't come here because I kind of felt like I was on a mission. Uh, when, you know, you come out of environments that many of us are familiar with, growing up, not having a lot. You know, we're gritty folks, you know. That stuff wasn't scary. I seen scary. That's not it. <laughs> you know, that's just simply not it. And my mission, my, my passion was to be helpful to folks. I mean, that was the part of the story I told about why, you know, defending people in the court of law wasn't, wasn't really going to do it for me. So I was there to achieve a goal. And if people weren't going to be accommodating and nice and whatever, which clearly you prefer. I mean, that's what you really want to have happen. Mm -hmm. But that wasn't going to deter me from what I was doing because philanthropy for me has never been a job. Philanthropy is, and, and being helpful to folks is my vocation. That's my calling, right? And I wasn't going to let anybody 
say anything or do anything that can make me feel like I didn't belong. One of the things I think is really important, particularly for young people to know, is to be competent at your work so that your ability to do it is never questioned. And even when people sometimes out of whatever, racism, exclusion, want to try to make that the issue, no, I'm always prepared to show them that that is not the case. Mm. Yeah. Anaya, did you have a question? I see you, Sam. Give me a second. Yes. So my question was, did you know about philanthropy when you were younger? And at around, if you're comfortable sharing, around like what age did you get involved with it? Or did you hear, learn about it? Yeah. I, you know, <laughs> I knew some something about philanthropy, but that was like kind of some far off reality, you know, for me as a kid growing up, you know, in the public housing in New York City. You know, we heard, we've heard about the Rockefeller Foundation and Ford mm -hmm. Foundation and folks who are super wealthy who would, you know, do kind things for people who didn't have as much. But my relationships and connection was that didn't exist. You know, you heard about it, you knew it was out there, but how you got there, what, you know, you have to study to be part of that, that was like some great mystery. Mm -hmm. I would say like, I didn't start out thinking that's where I was going, but by working hard and trying to be competent and smart at what I did, you know, a lot of people saw things in me and pointed me in directions where that became uh, an opportunity for me and one that I, you know, I took uh, and took with the intention of addressing and changing some of the things that you just described to be a black person, a black male in that sector and to do extraordinarily well as a way of saying we could be there. We, we have a lot to offer and our lived experience. Yeah. Right. My lived experience was an advantage, was unique. And something who might have, and people who might have had a, a different trajectory, better schools, a richer resource life, uh, resource life, uh, were not simply better positioned because I knew what it, what it was like to be in the street and not have. And some of that you can't get out of a book. You're right. Okay. You're right. And and this, oh, you, who's that? Who's oh, that? I just wanted to share a quick thought. Um, I just wanted to say that your connection with your the role that you are in is a very special one because we have a lot of people who are placed in these roles and have no idea about any experiences yeah. like this but think that they can solve the problem mm -hmm. and so you're in a very special position to have experienced this to know exactly how to tackle it so i applaud you on that thank you and thank i know you. sam wanted to say something but sam adrian hasn't gone yet can you go after adrian thank you sir cool so uh first thing i wanted to say was Congratulations. <laughs> and that particular congratulations, I see you were most recently honored as one of the most ad admirable CEOs in 2023. Yeah. We like That's it. We like it. <laughs> uh, so my question is, being a CEO for so long, what was the biggest thing you think you've learned from the job? No matter where I go as a black male, I have always got to prove that I belong. You know, people tend to hire you from your history, you know, and I have, I've been blessed and fortunate to have a history with a lot of success in it. And it doesn't mean I haven't failed, because sometimes the things you try don't turn out the way that you actually hope. Mm -hmm. uh, but I will tell you, no matter where I go, uh, and even people who know my name and even know some of my history, who are often not folks of color, have this question, as, is he real? Is this good fortune? Is there some mystery here or something that we're missing? You know, 
uh, I would often think that, you know, if I was not a black man, and of course my name is Chet, you people don't automatically make that assumption, mm -hmm. um, that, you know, my history alone would answer that question. But I have found that you no, know, no matter where I am, no matter what awards, most of my CEO, I hold one of the highest awards in health family you could, in health philanthropy you can receive, the Terrence Keenan Award. Whatever, no matter where I go, people are always looking at me like, is this guy for real? Or is he somehow duped us all? Mm. Uh, and my my, my goal, um, because of my drive and my passion, is to quickly disabuse them of that assumption. Mm. I'm for real. You know, I know this business. And, I, and I, I bring a level of commitment and dedication to it that is born of uh, uh, what your colleague said, which is my own life experience. My colleague. That's cute. That's my daughter. <laughs> <laughs> that's cute. Uh, Samuel. Okay. So I was looking on your website and I stumbled upon the mission, vision, missions, and values, you know, little thing. And I saw some... To me, there were broad statements and not very direct statements. And I wanted to kind of get into that. Like, what are your visions? What What is your mission for this foundation? And what, like, what things do you want to tackle in these communities? Yeah. You know, uh, great observation. Uh, mission and vision statements are usually broad. And I like them broad because it allows me to do a lot of different things uh, as opposed to be focused on, you know, one thing. Like folks say, you know, we should be focused. You're a health uh, foundation. Why are you not focused on health? And I tell people, uh, and they'll say, why are you not focused on health, thinking health care, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. uh, and it makes a lot of sense. You know, Sierra Health Foundation, you do health. But what, what is health? It's more than just your ability to go to a doctor. Yeah. It's more than your ability to have an insurance card. Uh, we know 85% of your health has nothing to do with health care. Yeah. Healthcare is important for you when you're sick. The promotion of health, what keeps you healthy, 85%, that 85% is where you live, what you eat, decisions you make, your sense of safety, and your sense of self-efficacy, which is your ability to believe that even if life throws you difficult times, that you have the resources, and it's not just money, it's mm -hmm. people and connections to get through those. So our broad statements allow us to do uh, a lot of work outside of what people would consider to be traditional health-focused work. So, for example, uh, we uh, run one of the um, uh, most well-funded uh, juvenile justice reform efforts in the state of California because we believe uh, young people, mass incarceration, particularly people of color, is just an unhealthy thing. Mm -hmm. uh, we know that young people who have a juvenile justice connection in high school. Uh, and if that results in incarceration, 90% of those people will go on to prison. Yeah. And if it doesn't re re uh, result in some level of incarceration or detention for young people, that, go that goes down to 25%. So the science behind what we do and the breadth behind what we do is really important. The other thing I'd say really quickly is I ask people all the time, like, what do you think is the most powerful determinant of how well you live and how healthy you will be. And people will tell me, oh, it's uh, healthcare or it's this or that. Most powerful determinant of, of health is, is your education. Because right? education is tied to so many different things. So your education is tied to what you're likely to be your income. Yep. Right? Because that'll determine what your job is. 
And your income is most likely determined where you live. Because what community can you afford to buy a house in? If you and can people, afford to buy a yeah, house. People think, or rent a house, whatever it yeah. is. People think that it's your genetic code. And that was true in the past. But now we can tell how long you live by your zip code. Mm. Yeah. Right. So, and your zip code is purchased. That's not something you're simply born with. So for us, those broad statements uh, are about allowing us to put our toe in the water in a number of issues that we believe our focus, which is on disinvested communities and communities of color, because you're on the website, we say we're about racial justice and equity. That's what mm -hmm. we're about, is to be able to work in a, in a number of areas without being pigeonholed into one specific uh, area of interest. And especially when they... Folks assume that Black people are only concerned about specific things. Mm -hmm. So you've gotten this broad statement, which means you can do what you want. Yeah, we're <laughs> going to do we're going to do uh, a lot of what the science uh, you know tells us to do. Mm -hmm. uh, and you know, I, I'm always bringing up science, and people think like that's a, you know some kind of focus on some academic mystery. But no, the science is you know in in, in my world uh, is quite visual. And it can almost be considered, you know, a, a derivative of, you know, anecdotal information, what you see. Because you can go out in the communities and you know when you're in a place where people aren't doing well. Yep. And I don't need no scientists to tell me. Nope. <laughs> like, this is, a, this is likely to be a place where, where folks are, are struggling. Uh, we know what they look like. We know who, who, who lives there. We know what the kind of things that we want to battle. And for us, we're going to be very honest about that being unacceptable, mm -hmm. and we're going to invest in the institutions that are hot, that are trying to change those conditions in those communities. I love that. And just so everybody, if you just joined, um, we have two young ladies. They're sitting next to each other up at the top of your screen. They are going to be letting us know what college they've decided to go to because today is decision day, um, and a lot of kids throughout the country are telling you where they're going to school next. Um, but you're listening to Free Game with Chet Hewitt, um, CEO of Sierra Health Foundation. Um, Melissa, talk to me. Well, Sam actually took my question. I was going to ask about vision and what the vision is for the Sierra, Sierra Health Foundation. Um, so I don't have a question currently, but I just want to applaud you on everything that you're doing because I didn't know about the field of philanthropy before this conversation. I had heard the word before, but never really understood what that meant. And so I just thank you because this is super educational and really interesting. And I applaud you for all of the work that you're currently doing. Jalen. Oh, I don't even know if I have, I was just sitting well, here yeah. soaking it up. I'm, I'm soaking I know. up the game. Just, everybody's just in, in, enamored right yeah, now. It's and just I soaking see Adrian grabbing his microphone. So maybe he has something. He, 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 I, he I, was thinking, I was thinking a little bit. Oh Lord. Okay. <laughs> Who's that, Samuel? Samuel's oh. on it. Come okay. on, Sam. So, um, I wanted to ask about the start of your foundation. Like, how did mm -hmm. you get it off the ground, and how did you keep it a successful and running foundation to continue to help the community? Yeah. Well, you know, another great question. They've all been great questions. You know, the foundation was started before I got there. It started in 1985, and it was a seal of a non uh, the seal of a nonprofit uh, health. Uh, provider uh, to a for-profit entity. And when you are for-profit, you can't take nonprofit assets into your company. Mm -hmm. And so the idea was the money could have went to the state or it could have went 
uh, to create another institution. And so created the foundation with the idea that it would give away 5% of its proceeds every year forever. You know, invest in the market, try to get a return, average about 5%, give away that 5%, and you know, it will forever be you know, able to make you know, a grants. Uh, so when I got there, that was the case. 2008, the Great Recession, most foundations lost a lot of money. And then I founded the center uh, uh, 10 years ago. Uh, and the center has grown considerably. Uh, its budget this year will be a little over $300 million. You know, we'll push um, 90% of that money out to communities over the next several years. Uh, we're, we're serious uh, about what it is that we do. Um, we're, you know, we're brilliant because, uh, you know, we as black folks know how to run businesses, Come on, talk know to how them. to grow businesses. We have ideas and we have a passion born of those experiences. Yeah. And, and we're going to go out there and not just simply enrich ourselves. That's not my goal. Mm-hmm. I've been blessed. I've been able to do well by doing good. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for me, following both my faith and my passion, I'm going to continue uh, to do that. Because for me, those things are inextricably linked to one another uh, as well. And sometimes when you say these numbers, people think you're, 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 you're being boastful or whatever. That's not, you know, where, where I am is in, in my professional career. I kind of feel like I don't need to do that you know, anymore. I've had an, enough success and not that you can't have more. But for, um, for me at the foundation, as its leader, as the founder of the center, as someone who's had that uh, level of success, uh, it's not so much that I do what I want. I really try to take a lot of input for people and do what needs to be done. Because mm-hmm. one thing about leadership that's really important is to not isolate yourself and simply start believing your own thoughts outside of anybody else's influence or input. Because the beauty of being a great leader of, of, of a fantastic institution is that you get to have really smart, committed people around you. As well. mm-hmm. And you need to leverage uh, their knowledge, their passion, and their insights as well. So you said you founded the center 10 years ago? Yes. You did that? Yes. And is that, that's the nonprofit arm of Sierra yeah, that's Health? That's the center of Sierra Health. Yeah. Okay. Because oh. I'm, I'm trying to, so you have the for-profit side and the nonprofit side that you're leading? Uh, actually, four businesses. That we four businesses. So we have okay. the foundation, which is Sierra Health Foundation. We have uh-huh. the center at Sierra Health. Uh-huh. I also manage a, a Sierra a prop, land, uh, and property company because we own uh, property and uh, manage an impact investment fund. Oh, so we loan money at low rates to businesses and communities that are trying to do great things in communities. Uh-huh. Um, and you know, we, we get a return from that. I well. just want to look at their faces when you're talking. <laughs> Man, sorry, wow. she's like, What? And we ain't talking Wendy's fo for fo. Jada, you over there snapping. Melissa has her mouth wide open. Um, I did see something in the in the chat. It said, uh, basically, I guess it says, are funds ever given for statistics on these nonprofits reaching people who were helped? We 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 have a you know I have a full time evaluator on my staff, uh, a, a brother from Chicago who is a PhD researcher mm-hmm. who helps people kind of craft you know their uh, assessments or evaluations. Uh, so that we can understand, you know, exactly what we're doing and what the impact it is it is having. So I'll give you an example. You know, we ran the state's $100 million COVID campaign. And if you've seen a commercial that was teaching you about COVID and the vaccine, it said brought to you by Sierra Health. Mm-hmm. Right? I remember that. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's right. Yep. And so we did that in partnership with the state. 
we made sure 40% of that $100 million went to ethnic media. Mm-hmm. So we, we said, if you want to connect with communities of color uh, and ethnic communities, you got to have media folks from those communities because they know how to craft messages that people will hear and understand, right? right. That's different than just 100%. having media. So those kind of things are really important. And we know that we've touched you know, California. We probably touched, based on our research and data, close to 15 million people. Mm. I've seen those messages and you've seen them yourself. Yeah, I did. Right? <laughs> so, you know, those are the kind of things that we're always trying to do. And, and for me, it's really, really important because I said earlier that people are always wondering whether or not it's for real. Like, is right. this guy really able to do it? So my, my attempt to master the, my craft, master my craft is really important. It's my best defense against all the folks who try, who are wondering whether this black guy really knows what he's doing or, the, or is he, you know, somehow pull the wool over our eyes and there's some trickery going on. Right. Uh, like I say, my, my job and my passion is to disabuse them of that quickly. And that's not, I don't say that just a, a personal statement because, you know, I've been around a long time. That's okay. I want them to know that anybody black they encounter at that first assumption shouldn't be what trickery is going on. It's like, this, per- this person probably landed here because they know that stuff. So, you know, that's when I talk about changing the narrative, it's not just, you know, what you write or what you see on some commercial. I think the, the personal side of that, folks' interaction with Black excellence mm. is incredibly important to having them reframe their perception of Black people. Mm. He, see, he likes it. Y'all with that free game. Me too, though. I'm, I'm, I'm soaking it in, too. Don't think it's just y'all. No. <laughs> so they keep asking you about vision and mission mm. and all of this stuff, right? What I want to ask you about is, um, because I'm assuming you don't want to do this forever. Mm. So are you thinking about a succession plan? What are you looking at? Are you looking at young people behind you? Like, how? what is that process uh, for you? Yeah, you know, the... The whole pipeline for me is important. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is why I love what I do, because I can start even really early in that pipeline. So, you know, we help found California Funders for Boys and Men of Color. We have our My Brother's Keeper effort, and we have a number of efforts emerging for young women as well. Uh, and I, we don't care if you're in grade school, we want you to be in grade programming, because that is part of that leadership trajectory uh, that, we believe everybody should be on, mm-hmm. uh, regardless of what sector you might want to go into, business, art, music, fashion, finance. That's really important. And then on a, a more institutional level, you know, always looking to bring in, you know, talent from uh, ethnic and racial communities. We have, I have a number of folks. If you go on our website as a foundation, we're very diverse, and, and that's just, you know, self-evident. And for me, everybody on my team is has leadership capacity. And we're going to invest in that through their development plans, through exposing them to people. I say that, you know, being in this space is more than about giving away money. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is. Um, part of it is that it's also sharing relationships. Right. So I'm introducing people to our leaders in the field. So they're exposed and you build your own. This is a data term for young people, your Rolodex or your contact slits <laughs> in your phone, because that's your modern-day <laughs> Rolodex. They say Rolodex? Rolodex. <laughs> I, I, I tell you. It's crazy. I've heard that before. I tell you. Well, that's the same. Yeah. And it's really oh, important, Lord. because 
one of the most important way to find your way to, to things you want to do is to know people mm -hmm. who are doing it. Absolutely. People don't, I, I'll tell you, it's been a really long time since I found a job. I mean, I've been here 16 years. I get approached about jobs all the time and I've never, and I don't apply for them. Mm. You know, you know people. People go and look for people they know. That's right. Yeah. Right. And I'm not saying you shouldn't apply. There are processes where that works. You come through college, they help you. But building that contact list, knowing folks in that field, being able to walk up and shake somebody's hand and say, introduce yourself, all the things mm -hmm. that sometimes the black people we feel really uncomfortable about, those are really important things to do. Because most of the time when somebody wants to offer me a job, it's say, Chet, you know, would you consider doing this? I know I'm not out there prospecting. I've been around a long time, like I said, and, and when you're younger, it's really different. But, you know, that idea about introducing folks to other people so that they have their own, you know, network of folks they can tap into yeah. is really important, right? And I, I'm able to introduce young people to people that they probably would not have access to. Mm. So I've taken, you know, folks on trips with me around the country, uh, introduced them, I've taken folks when we were at the White House, we were, uh, you know, some of the meetings, and we're introducing our young people to people all the time, right? And we're, and, and we're supporting their ability to maintain that particular contact. That's a really important part of your own professional Absolutely. development. That's why y'all travel with me so much. That's right. I know. I was <laughs> just about to say. I was because I was just lecturing y'all. What was I telling y'all when we were on the um, the thing coming back from the the air, Oh yeah, that there was some there were some people on there that we we should try to get on the podcast. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I was telling them it's important to meet people and to network with people and to form relationships with mm -hmm. people. And I said on this airplane right now there are at least two. Black elected officials, somebody needs to get to them, mm -hmm. right? And so just trying to encourage them, don't wait. Like, go and introduce yourself. And they've been doing that. Jada and I have been doing that since they were probably in sixth grade um, coming up to the Capitol. Um, or seventh grade, I'm sorry, you guys are at Ed Harris. Um, they've been coming up to the Capitol. And as you see, Sam is not afraid to ask questions. He shouldn't ever be. And Melissa is is a leader in her own right establishing BSU on her campus and um, applying to be the poet laureate there in um, Southern California. So they've all been exposed to different things. And I'm glad you said that because it's so important. And I, I think it, it might stick a little bit better because it's coming from somebody else. It's essential. I mean, you know, I have two, two sons, one 18, one 15. And, you know, somebody tell them to do it. And they're like, oh, <laughs> I don't know that person's a little uncomfortable and it, and it is mm -hmm. it, 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 is. it, it is and I, I totally get it but they have had experiences where you know downstream they need a reference letter from somebody or you know they need access to something i say you know you can call so-and-so that they you have a little in there you know and they'll they understand why that was really important so learn to get comfortable that's why i love sam's questions you know practicing that in safe spaces yeah. Uh, and being encouraged as you're encouraging them to actually do it is really important. I tell people all the time, you know, I'm an old guy. I've heard no so much that no should never scare you. Right? <laughs> <laughs> you're going to hear that a lot in life. You're going to say, no, nah, I can't do that. But they can't even say that to you. Or and you will also miss the opportunities when they say yes, if you don't ask. Right. Mm -hmm. A non-ask is a definite no. Yeah, I say change the odds a little bit and make the ask 50 50. Hey, 
That's it. That's where you that's a, that's that's where you should actually start. So learn to overcome the discomfort associated with that. I just want to be clear, having that discomfort is normal. That's nothing, absolutely nothing wrong with that, right? Now it doesn't mean that you know you can't do it, but the idea is to get beyond that and go make the ass. And I think the more experience you have doing those kind of things, the more comfortable you'll you'll get with them as well. Hundred percent. Second that I I talk to Lorena all the time about mm-hmm. that exact statement because just because I um, we had a, we had got interviewed and I said they asked what was your favorite part of working here or doing what you do in this field and I'll say the relationships that I that I mm-hmm. build with people because of the simple fact. I'm talking to people I never thought I would talk to. If you asked me three years ago, do I think I'll be talking to a CEO of Sierra Health Foundation or would I be interviewing uh, politicians who are running? No. Well, why would I be doing that? That's what I would ask myself. <laughs> why would I be doing that? So just getting into the spaces with people that I never in a million years even knew existed or uh, like really cared about, really, because, you know, they're not in my everyday life. So, I, you know, I don't see what they're doing, but getting to actually know them and actually see what they're doing is bigger than just they're not in my everyday life. They're affecting the things that go on in my everyday life. Though. Mm. I've seen you do that in person. That's how that's how you and I met. Yeah. You came up to me in the middle of the, our conference center <laughs> yeah. for a little bit of encouragement. Yeah. I was watching. Hey, <laughs> Yeah. And, you know, and that, that that's good. And, I, you know, that's the kind of support that those of us who are further along in our career need to provide to those. Who you asked me about leadership and succession. Yeah. My point is that happens along the way, not just people Absolutely. who are immediately positioned to succeed myself, but even for folks who 10 or 15 years from now will be in that particular position. So that level of nurturance, you know, as opposed to arrogance yeah. or separation is incredibly important. You know, that's when people talk to me about black love. That's what that's one of the ways it actually shows up. We should have enough mercy and grace for mm, one another to be able grace. to like spend that few minutes yep. to connect with our young people so that they know that not only do we have expectations of them, high expectations because of their brilliance and ability, but we're gonna be there to support them along the way. And you have a question in the chat that says, just as a martial artist has a favorite kick or a pitcher has a favorite pitch. What's your number one go-to skill that you've developed that is second nature? My ability to kind of inspire people to do things, mm. you know, I, I, and, uh, you know, you asked me about transformation early on and, you know, how that works. You know, I, I have always found that people do more of what you can inspire than what you direct. Right? Yeah. And uh, at my time in Alameda County, with some of the fantastic work we did with a lot of people, because it wasn't just me, you know, the, uh, the, someone was asked to describe, you know, my leadership, and they said he's part professor and part preacher. And, <laughs> okay. and, and I, I kind of like that, you know, because it, it suggests that you know your stuff. Now, there's a three C speech I, I used to give in leadership classes about being competent, committed, uh, and being caring uh, at the same time. Um, but you also have to be able to talk to people so that they can connect with what get, what drove them into the work, what they're passionate about, right? And I think that being able to connect those two things for me uh, has been a big part of you know, my, my success, uh, to get people to be in touch with their own passion about an issue and thus work hard on it, not because they're being directed to, but because it also allows them to fully actualize 
who they are and who they want to be as well. Okay, so Great last question. last call for questions, uh, party people. Samuel has his finger up. <laughs> I gotta get ready for this because Sam Sam be asking <laughs> some questions. I'm ready, Sam. Yeah, come on, hit me. The question was I wanted to ask was uh, what are the responsibilities and traits that you obtain as a CEO, and what and what advice would you give to a young aspiring CEO or leader of a business in some way? I love it. I, I, I love it. Um, I think my, my, uh, some of my best traits uh, are my ability to, to listen to people. You know, there's a saying by, we have a poet laureate with us, by the great Maya Angelou, who says, people will forget what you say. They'll forget what you did. They'll never forget how you made them feel. That's her favorite That's statement. Right. We, you just said it. I just said it earlier yeah, in the meeting. Yeah. And, <laughs> an hour ago. You know, and for me, that, you know, people's like, what's your management philosophy? That's kind of my management philosophy kind of summed up, you know, eloquently, of course, by, you know, someone who's just, who's just a phenomenal, um, you, know, you know, poet. Um, so I'm always trying to make people feel like their issue uh, is worth listening to. Now, I'll be honest with you, sometimes I'm questioning whether it really is, <laughs> right? But I try to authentically give them the audience that they actually deserve. And I believe that people appreciate that. You know, sometimes people just really want to be heard. And I'm not talking about it in a performative way. Right. I'm talking about like trying to really listen because maybe there's some tidbits and wisdom, even when, you know, it's not as clearly articulated as you might want it to be at that particular moment. I think the other thing is that to be a thoughtful risk taker, if you're a CEO, because, you know, people say president and CEO uh, isn't the same thing. No, a president is someone who has more operational responsibility for organization of nuts and bolts and how things work. And a CEO's job is to be a visionary. So part of my job is to try to see what's around the bend in the river. It's kind of impossible, but mm -hmm. you you take you know thoughtful risk about what might be happening next and how you position your organization to take advantage of that opportunity or to avoid that particular challenge. And those things are, are really important uh, in our work. So you know you've seen bios on me it says a thoughtful risk taker, right? Uh, no risk, no reward. That's right. Right. No risk, no reward. And so for me, the reward is often this notion of being successful. And so I'm going to take some risk. What does that mean for as a philanthropist? I'm going to invest in some some groups that might be small. That might not, you know, have shown what they could do or what their impact might be yet. Uh, but I'm going to make the bet that they can be something extraordinary. Mm. If we were talking about a stock market, that means I would have bought Google stock before anybody else. Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And then when you're super rich, people go like, you know, when you buy it, they go like, no one ever heard of that. Then when it grows out, they go like, everybody should have bought that. Yep. Right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Too late. So being a thoughtful uh, risk taker in the social space, not just in the business side, I think is really, really important uh, as well. And then I said earlier, you know, about really knowing your craft. You know, I work in the space with policy. Mm -hmm. uh, the question that no one ever asked, people ask me a lot about like, uh, give away money and how much money have you given away over the course of your time at the foundation? And it's, it's in the hundreds of millions of dollars, you know, probably close to a billion dollars at this point in time. But, you know, no one ever asked like, well, where does it come from? And how do you maintain it? I don't because, think they care. Well, you know <laughs> they just want to make sure they get some. <laughs> yeah. I'll tell you why it's good for this conversation yeah. because investing and being able to produce wealth is really important. And, you know, and for black people, it's why the wealth gap between black folks and white folks looks like, like it does. 
Right. So knowing, it's part of it. That's that is part. It of It might be part of it, but we also have to talk about the policies that were put on the books that disenfranchise black people. The redlining, um, the of course the mass incarceration, but before that the convict leasing, and so I think that there were a lot of things that were done legislation wise um, to keep the wealth gap at where it is, along with not knowing what to do if you had money. Um, that is something else that I think uh, we can absolutely have a further conversation about. And, and, and I don't disagree with that at all. Okay. I, I, I include that okay. in in this in, my, in that broader notion of why that actually is in, it happens in the way that it actually it does. I got you. Because the one thing that I I never assume, and I'm, and I I'm not going to uh, suggest you're assuming it either. Is that we're powerless, powerless in those in those situations. No, look that at we us. Can, that we, and and for me, you know, part of my ability, and this goes to Sam's question, like how do you stand in these spaces, mm-hmm. right? When you have people showering you with doubt about your own ability or capacity, or questioning your competence, no matter how you've demonstrated right. it before, uh, is to not allow people to, to feel like you're powerless. Mm-hmm. I tell you, I've been in some tough situations. Uh, with some folks who have political influence and what whatever, and I don't think anybody would ever see see me quaking in my boots. You should like the good sister here. I might have been nervous, but I ain't letting nobody else know if that is a, <laughs> in fact the case. Yeah, because you know you have something that you're really trying to to achieve, and even in things around mass incarceration, that we've done a lot of work in that space. Mm-hmm. Underinvestment, redlining, and greenlining. We understand that. The war really against well. drugs. We can yeah. talk about it all. And, and you know, for me, the knowledge, because that's what I'm talking about, yes, sir. is what allows you to battle and beat back you even right. bad policy. Mm-hmm. Melissa had a question for you. She's in the private chat. You can't see it, but okay. I can. Right. <laughs> Come on, Melissa. So my question is, you have talked about all of these amazing things that you have done over the years. So what do you do for yourself, whether that's like self-care wise or Ooh, mental health wise? Because... This has to be, even if it's not a 24-7 job, it's cutting it, seems like it's cutting it pretty close. So what do you do for yourself to take care of you? Because your job is taking care of other people, but what about you? You know something? If you could see me smiling right now. And I am <laughs> she smiling. Can see you. you know, because you know that that's that's an, an excellent, an excellent question because you have got to find ways to stand in those spaces uh by strengthening your soul. Mm. before you enter them, right? And so uh, my appreciation for your question, because you actually strengthened me just by asking me how I was doing. And sometimes it's the simplest things that we can do for one another. Yeah. Right? That's part of that quote, how you made somebody feel. You just made me feel really good, so good, I have to start smiling. <laughs> right here, right? And I'm Look at him a, right there in that camera right there. I, I, I'm good for a week. I'm, a, I'm ready to go back out there and do some, whatever I got to do for the, ne- for the next week. But, you know, I, I, I said earlier, I draw my, uh, a lot of my faith and strength from faith and family. You know, my, my two boys who, you know, I love and, and, you know, do all that I can do for, and who are my model for my work? Because people say to me, well, what do you want for kids? Shit. I said, I want the same things I want for my children. I want every young person to have. You know, that's, you know, I'm not trying to make it complicated or, or anything else. Uh, my wife, who, you know, who is my partner in all this and has been by my side for 20 years this year and, you know, was always propping me up. I'm one of eight kids, mm-hmm. you know, six surviving. So my, my, my siblings are a big part of 
you know, that community and, and the many, many people I know and I have met through this particular work. Because if there is a return on the investment for the work, I've gotten to meet some extraordinary, extraordinary people who don't always have a lot, who most often didn't come from a lot, but their compassion and mm. commitment to the work they do is, is really like extraordinary. Uh, my mom used to say, you know, son, things can be hard, but just make them worth it. Mm. And so there are days when the work is hard, but people, this conversation, your questions for me makes it worth it. And I know we're going to run over a couple of minutes, but it's it's so important. Uh, Adrian has a question, and then we got to go to the girls so they can tell us yes. where they're going to school at. I, I want to hear that. Okay. I, man, that okay, come on, Adrian. What you got? <laughs> oh, Melissa took the question I was gonna uh, I was gonna ask, but uh, off my head. <laughs> 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 Go for said it. he has a question, so no, I'm like, let I, me pass it to you. I literally did, but it's okay. I'm okay. Here. Um, so anyone who knows me knows I'm I'm awkward. So for my question is for people who are trying to get stop it, Anaya. Go ahead. What'd you do? She, she, she laughed at, at you. She laughed at you. <laughs> got out the camera. <laughs> okay. Not too much. <laughs> Bruh. Uh, but leading my question was. What is your advice for people who are trying to get better at communicating and mm. who who want to go up to somebody and ask them something, but they talk themselves out of it, mm-hmm. kind of like their own worst enemy? You know, I can relate because when I was young, I was really quiet and, and really shy. You know, I, I've given a lot of speeches and people think I do that very well. And I can tell you, I'm always nervous, even mm. at this point in my life. Uh, it is. I think realizing that everybody has some imperfection they're dealing with, mm-hmm. everybody. And that just happens to be yours. Because I said, this is this, this what I meant earlier when I was talking about the wealth gap, and I wasn't really trying to go deep in that. I, for me is, if you own the issue, then you're a better person to control the issue. Mm-hmm. And what people try to do is to avoid what they need to confront. So if that's your challenge, then really work hard to do it. And don't try to do it in the most difficult place first. Right. Do it in a place where you feel most confident and comfortable. So maybe you go up to that person with someone else the first time and they introduce, they introduce themselves and you step right on behind them. You've seen the kind of reaction. Your hand goes out, you know, next. You know, Sam loves basketball. So I'm assuming you love basketball. You go out and you shoot some baskets every now and, <laughs> now and probably a lot if you really like it. Right. <laughs> you love poetry. You practice your lines and your verse and how to memorize them. Got to practice what you're not good at. And I think find solace in the fact that all of us are not good at something. There's nothing unique about having something that you need to struggle with in life. You know, the world sometimes tries to make young people feel like you, you're supposed to be perfect. Right. No perfect people Mm-mm. don't exist. And so what you're holding is just a challenge that's unique to you, but not unique in the fact or sense that everybody has a challenge. That's just yours. Mastery. I'll help. Yeah. I'll help. Because <laughs> I was shy and I had stage fright and I wouldn't, I hated getting in front of people. Um, and then I took some communications classes mm-hmm. at, at my school and um, here I am after being on the radio and getting out and trying to develop my personality. So we'll work on it together. Um, I, I, can I just say something? Yes, else? sir. 
I wouldn't have known that. Uh, thank you. I would not have known that. We're all a work in progress. I didn't know he talked when, yeah. before he no. got here. Yeah. I'm like, he has, he actually yeah, talked? That's okay. A, that's a lot of people. <laughs> a lot of people. All right, ladies. Wait, girl, if y'all don't pull it together, pull it together, ladies, with your hands on your mouth. Go ahead and put them as the main. Yes, there you go. Uh, All right, so it's decision day, yes. young ladies. Uh, let's start with Anaya since your name starts with an A. Mm. Okay. Okay. Do I say? Oh, yeah. Is there like a drum roll sound? There a drum roll, Tevin. Wait, come on, oh. come on, Tevin. You should have came over. Let's see. see. Okay, hold on. I have the one from the little the little board thing. Uh, that the was the Crash Bandicoot sounds. Give her the black girl magic sound. Okay. Give her that one. Ready? Okay. Yeah, you can. Are you gonna zip? You're gonna do the. Am I supposed to? I don't know if I'm supposed to say anything. Yeah. Okay. You gotta, girl, you got supposed to say as you as you. Yeah. Oh. Oh. Uh, oh. Follow twenty twenty three. I will be attending. All right, you baby bison, you okay? That's, okay. The, that's the thing, the yeah, bison, yeah. baby bison. Come on, okay. all right, uh, Miss Jada. Okay. Uh, seven words, give me, give me the little magic sound. Hold on, hold on. Oh, oh, seven. Oh, come on. One, two, three. I'm going to Sac State, guys. Hey. <laughs> she says fingers up. <laughs> Love to see it. Love to see it. I'm in a family full of fingers now, so. Family, yeah. Yeah. Legacy. Come on now. Legacy. That's what it's called. Legacy. Yeah. Legacy. Period. Okay. I love it. I love it. Well, congratulations to you too. And both of you will be uh participating in the black graduation celebration, yes? Yeah. Nice segue. So we have celebration weekend coming up June 23rd through the 25th. Woman. Right here, three whole days. We're talking about the Kicks and Hill Soiree. My birthday. The Oh, Lord. The Family <laughs> Fun Day on that Saturday and ending it off with our annual Black Grad Celebration. So Jada and Anaya will both be participating. If you have young people who are promoting as class of 2023 or graduating as class of 2023, please make sure to go visit our website and sign up the chillings and bring the family because it is a party. Always a party. Yeah. Always a party. Always a party. Yeah. We're looking forward to some good black excellence. I believe our theme is dripping, dripping in black, in black excellence. excellence. Uh, so uh, make sure y'all are in the building for all three days. We can't wait to see you and your families. So make sure you come on out. Um, with that, I think we are over the time. So let's get it popping, Sam. Go ahead with your uh with your wave. Melissa, follow him. Girls on top. Hey, hey. Mr. Hewitt. <laughs> Just he like, uh oh. Uh oh. Uh -oh. <laughs> <laughs> All right, peace out. We'll see you next Whole week. Whole mood, baby. <laughs>